Last weekend, several white nationalist and hate groups came together in Charlottesville, Virginia, for a Unite the Right rally. Those assembled for the rally chanted slogans like and to protest against these hate groups, and as the day went on, things turned violent. Activist Heather Heyer was killed, and many more were injured when a car drove into a crowd of protesters. President Trump gave his initial response to the events in Charlottesville. We condemn in the strongest possible terms this egregious display of hatred, bigotry, and violence on many sides, on many sides. That statement failed to name or condemn the KKK, white nationalists, or other white supremacist groups. On Monday afternoon, facing pressure, Trump gave a scripted speech condemning those groups and calling racism evil. Racism is evil. And those who cause violence in its name are criminals and thugs, including the KKK, neo-Nazis, white supremacists, and other hate groups that are repugnant to everything we hold dear as Americans. We are a nation... But then, on Tuesday, Trump went off script. You had a group on one side, and you had a group on the other, and they came at each other with clubs, and it was vicious, and it was horrible, and it was a horrible thing to watch. But there is another side. There was a group on this side, you can call them the left, you've just called them the left, that came violently attacking the other group. I think there's blame on both sides, and I have no doubt about it, and you don't have any doubt about it either. He doubled down on his initial remarks, blaming both sides and saying that each side had, quote, fine people on it. Trump's response to this national crisis has been met with a lot of criticism, and it's raised questions about his leadership. At a moment of crisis, presidents seek to unify the country. Trump has failed to do so in the aftermath of Charlottesville. So... Can a president govern by division? Can a president who fails to denounce hate still bring the country together? This is Can He Do That? A podcast that explores the powers and limitations of the American presidency. I'm Allison Michaels. Today, we will explore the history of candidates and presidents' appeals to white fear, to win elections, and to fulfill political agendas. And we'll look at all the ways that presidents have responded to various national crises in the past. But first, we have Wesley Lowry here on the show. Wes is a Pulitzer Prize-winning national reporter at The Post who covers race and policing in America. He's also the author of the book, They Can't Kill Us All, Ferguson, Baltimore, and a New Era in America's Racial Justice Movement. Wes, thank you so much for coming on the show. Let's start by explaining exactly what protest groups were in Charlottesville this past weekend. So there was a mixture of groups. So first you had the groups themselves that called this Unite the Right rally. The main organizer was a local far-right activist. There were some neo-Nazi groups there. There were some kind of Richard Spencer-type groups there. You know, they call themselves the alt-right, but basically kind of these white nationalist, white grievance politics groups. You had some formal KKK groups who were there. David Duke was around and, and folks like that. So that kind of was your main set of demonstrators or protesters, then because of their presence and their well-announced presence, there was this counter-protest that was formed. So this was a lot of folks to the center left. You had 
some church groups, you had some kind of anti-fascist groups, and then you also had um, this group that calls themselves like Antifa, but they're more uh, a little more further extreme left group, protest group that did counter-protest at the inauguration um, and is in counter-protest at other spaces. And so you essentially had these two kind of warring groups uh, with, of different ideologies. Now, uh, what you also had, too, was these militia groups that came in support of the initial ralliers of the far-right groups, and they brought all these weapons and, and, and whatnot, and they were kind of standing guard around the group of white nationalists. Um, and then you had, um, and so then you started to have these clashes between counter-protesters and the protesters themselves, and then that's when some of the violence started to erupt. Right. So Trump has said that people, some people were there to merely protest the removal of this Robert E. Lee statue. He, I think he called them fine people who, who were there to do so. He tweeted Thursday morning calling Confederate statues and monuments beautiful. Can you explain the context as to why a Robert E. Lee statue is more than a mere historical symbol but can be deeply offensive to many? Well, of course. Most Confederate monuments, most Confederate highways, schools— were not things that were even named during the Confederacy. They were not things that have been there for hundreds of years. In many cases, and perhaps even in most cases, these are statues that were erected in the 50s and 60s as a backlash to the Civil Rights Movement. It was, oh, we see you trying to vote and go to schools, and so we're going to build a huge statue to a guy who thought you were subhuman. And we're going to put it downtown to remind you that we have the power and that we can control this, right? That's the story of many of these monuments. Not that they were built the day after the war ended, that they were built decades, in some cases centuries later, as a means of intimidating black and brown people. That said, we also have to think about how, we, you know, the argument that's made on the other side of that very often is that, you know, we don't want to erase history. You know, this has been here, and, and why would we get a, pretend like this didn't exist? But I think we have to, you know, in many ways, it's a, it's, a false, it's a false premise, right? We don't have to build a monument to something to remember it. Um, I had a during 9-11, I lived in North Jersey and had a friend whose father died in one of the towers. I don't need a statue of Osama bin Laden in Times Square to remember that it happened. I'm not erasing history by not having it there. There doesn't need to be a statue of, of Eric Harris and Dylan Claybold outside of Columbine High School for us to remember the atrocities that were committed there. That would be insane and deeply offensive. We would never ask Jewish Americans to go to Hitler High School. Yet we ask black Americans all the time to go to Robert E. Lee High Schools and Stonewall Jackson High Schools and to drive down streets named after these people. And again, like this is not theoretical. These are people who believed black Americans were subhuman and should be in chains, right? There's a real difficulty sometimes, I think, for folks, for white people, honestly, who, who've never had to think about this. What does it mean for us as a society to put someone in a position of reverence, to honor them with a statue downtown or in the Capitol building or at the State House. It means that we as a society are physically, literally putting them on a pedestal and saying this is someone to be honored. I, I think there's a real conversation to be had about who we should be honoring in those positions and who we should not. Let's talk a little bit more about Trump's response. Why do you think it took him so long to condemn the KKK, white nationalists and white supremacists? Why do you think he responded to this in the way that he did? Look, I think that what we've seen from the beginning of the campaign is that Donald Trump has at times played footsie with these far-right groups who, by and large, support him, um, have been vocally supportive of him. And he has been slow at many junctures to condemn them, to distance himself from them. What's clear here is that Donald Trump doesn't necessarily believe that there is a unique threat presented by these groups. Um, he has condemned the violence, certainly, and he has, you know, mourned the loss of life of the woman who was killed. But 
this equivocating, I think, for a lot of people provides a clarity about exactly where he stands on this. Yeah, but is he afraid of losing supporters? Like, what percentage of his supporters actually believe in these ideals or have sympathies towards white nationalist ideas? I mean, it has to be very small. It's a small portion of the population. So why not risk isolating this small group of people to stand up for some core American values? Maybe. I don't know that it has to be a small group of people because the problem is what are what are the core core values of white nationalists? What are their beliefs, right? The majority of Americans don't believe Confederate monuments should come down. And, and so I think it's very difficult sometimes. We like to believe these are these hyper-small fringe groups, but these small fringe groups do speak to political themes that underlie much of our politics and that do resonate with larger swaths of our population than we like to believe are true, right? I think sometimes we underestimate the extent to which racial politics underlie all of our politics and and how sensitive those issues are. And Donald Trump knows that he's not losing any white votes that he didn't already not have by not condemning Nazis and, and, and not saying Confederate statues should come down. He also knows that he could lose some if he were to start doing that. And so the safe thing for him to do is just not say anything. So this strategy of appealing to white voters isn't new, but is there something new in how Trump is using it? One example we can look at from history is how first presidential candidate Barry Goldwater and then later Richard Nixon used something called the Southern Strategy in their campaigns. To learn more about the Southern Strategy, we talked to John Powell, professor of law at UC Berkeley and director of the Haas Institute for a Fair and Inclusive Society. Here's John. So the Southern strategy originated in the early 60s with Goldwater. As you know, Republicans didn't do very well in the South. In fact, the South had voted for Democrats since the Civil War. And one way to understand it is since the Civil War, have been three major parties, Democrats, Republicans, and then the South. And we actually call them Dixiecrats because they weren't like other Democrats. Their main issue was race. So Goldwater decided to run appealing to Southern concerns about civil rights movement, the anxiety that they were feeling that the racial order in the South was being disturbed. And he was a Republican. So again, Republicans had never really won in the South. And he won five states. He didn't win the election. He only won five states in Arizona. But the next election cycle, Nixon realized that there was all this anxiety, especially in the South, around the civil rights movement or racial equality. But the Republican Party decided that they could actually pull whites away from the Democratic Party by appealing to their racial anxiety. But they had to do it in a way that was coded, because if it was not coded, whites in the North and other parts of the country where race wasn't so central would be pushed away. Did Nixon continue these ideas into his presidency? Did he make governing decisions based on appeals to, to white fear? Yes, it actually got worse. Uh, when he was elected in 68, he was still pushing some of uh, what we would now consider moderate issues. He was actually an early supporter of affirmative action. He was actually initially still moderate on issues of race. He appointed George Romney, Mitt Romney's father, to be Secretary of HUD. And George Romney basically said, we can't solve these issues unless we deal with segregated housing. And Nixon cut his legs off and under him. He said, we would not desegregate housing. We would not have integrated housing. That's not American policy. So from about 1970 on, his policies started very clearly reflecting racial anxieties. He appointed Supreme Court justices who were hostile to civil rights and hostile to integrating schools. And we started seeing the courts roll back on 
in the greatest schools. Yeah, and so he was, he was still doing it in coded ways, but he was definitely doing it. One other thing that's important about it, though, it wasn't just about race. It was largely about Republicans trying to capture government to actually roll back the New Deal, to sort of lower taxes, to stop regulations that protected people. So it was always a strategic effort. So as I said earlier, Nixon was not really a principal racist. In his early incarnation, he was actually very moderate and sometimes even liberal on race. But he realized that if he wanted to be president and if Republicans wanted to actually control government for the purpose of money, really, uh, they could use race as a wedge issue. So what strikes me as a possible difference here is that in the past, presidents were making decisions to pass a policy that they did actually believe in, or they were making these decisions as a means to an end. But what we're seeing with Trump, what seems unique here, is that he's using this strong language and he's failing to condemn Nazis and other groups because he doesn't want to alienate supporters because he sees it as part of a political strategy. Does that does that ring true for you? It does ring true. I mean, a dog whistle, as you know, people can't hear a dog whistle, only a dog can. So the idea is that you're actually sending a message to your base, but other people don't understand it. So white moderates who are even white liberals who it's important to them not to be racist won't hear this as racial messages. Trump is not engaging in dog whistle politics. Trump is no longer subtle. The, the Republican Party before Trump always was concerned that if they were too obvious, they would push away moderate whites. Trump doesn't seem to be concerned about moderate whites. He's going full steam ahead. One of the things a lot of research has shown is that a lot of whites, including some moderate whites, are increasingly concerned about the country not being majority white. And so there's this anxiety that Trump's playing into as well. Do you think it's fair to say that the Trump campaign learned from the success of Nixon and other presidents' use of this Southern strategy? No, without a doubt. I mean, he even used some of the same words. I mean, for example, his reference to law and order. So one of the things that Nixon actually stumbled on to some extent was law and order. Reverend Dr. King was running campaigns and he had a number of demonstrations and they were labeled civil disobedience because they were disobeying segregation laws. So in that sense, they were actually illegal. They were not violent and they were morally right, but they were illegal. So Nixon ran a campaign under law and order. So it was always a strategic effort. And the idea was that people asking for their equal rights, and in this case, blacks and later women and, and others, that they were out of order. They would need to reestablish an order where basically white men dominated. And so when Trump talks about make America great again, or when he used the term law and order, he's definitely making reference to the Southern strategy. I guess my question for you is that history, we've seen, it usually goes a few steps forward and then a few steps back before we can move forward again. Does this moment in time feel like just a few steps back, or does it feel like we're reverting to a bygone era, something much, much longer ago? Uh, To some extent, we haven't seen this because, you know, what's happened is Trump has captured government and he's using it to do very pernicious things. Some people say, this is nothing new. It is new. Think about it. We are activating neo-Nazis in the United States, and countries like Germany is disavowing. When we think about the Reconstruction in the 1870s and 1880s, it took us 80 years to recover from that. And in some ways, this is as dangerous. So I wouldn't treat this just as a passing thing. 
racial tensions have had a presence in our country for as long as it's existed. Tragedies or attacks emerge from those tensions, and presidents are then called upon to bring the country together. To look at how modern presidents have addressed the American public in the aftermath of these and other crises, we talked to someone with firsthand experience in shaping these messages. Michael Waldman is the former head speechwriter for President Bill Clinton and is now the president of the Brennan Center for Justice at NYU School of Law. Here's Michael. So at a basic level, what is it about these moments? What is it about these times that Americans turn to the president for leadership and unity? Why do they do that? The president doesn't have a lot of formal power in the Constitution. But one of the things that it has turned out to be the case that presidents can do, that nobody else can do, is speak to the whole country and for the country and to the whole world with kind of one singular individual strong voice. And so when there are emergencies, when there are crises, it's often been the case that presidents have found their voice in consoling the country, in uniting the country, and speaking for our values. And that has been true across many different administrations and many different kinds of crises and Republican presidents and Democratic presidents. What are the things a president can do to comfort and unite a nation? What kind of language can they use? You know, what kind of steps can they take to bring people together? Well, when people are unnerved or frightened or seeing division, presidents can calm people down, try to ease the tensions. And they very often do it by speaking to broad and uniting American values. Uh, You find always, whether it's Ronald Reagan with the Challenger explosion or Bill Clinton after the Oklahoma City terrorist attack or George W. Bush after the 9-11 attack, that among the things that are most powerful are the values of the Declaration of Independence, of American community and equality. And those are the things that are the most powerful words that can come out of a president's mouth at a moment like that. And it seems as that's what was missing. Yeah. Are those principles not as relevant to all Americans at this moment in history? Or do people not relate to the things that have traditionally unified everyone? Donald Trump was not the first American president to give speeches about Nazis <laughs> or, or the Confederacy. In fact, those are the moments when presidents speak for the values of equality, of the Declaration of Independence, of racial justice, and of freedom. It's, that's when so many of those most powerful speeches have come, whether it's the Gettysburg Address that Lincoln gave or FDR's prayer on the eve of D-Day, or when Franklin Roosevelt talked about the four freedoms as what we were fighting for against the neo-Nazis and the Nazis, or Lyndon Johnson talking about the Voting Rights Act and saying we shall overcome. This role for president is not just some sort of hallmark card set of banalities. It's in the face of a crisis, you call on the basic American values of equality and democracy and freedom, and you defend them against white supremacists. You defend them against the Confederacy and the Nazis. And so that was what was so jarring at this exact moment about what Trump has done on this. It is literally the opposite of what every other president of either party has done at a time like this. So you worked as the head speechwriter for President Clinton. 
Now, you worked for him in that capacity, though you didn't actually write the Oklahoma City bombing speech. But can you weigh in a little bit this major moment in for Clinton to address the country? How did the administration approach this? In April of 1995, there was a terrorist attack, and it killed many, many people in a federal building in Oklahoma City. And President Clinton gave a few different significant public statements about it. And he did a few things that presidents do in a moment like this. First of all, he expressed clear moral stakes. He said that the attacks were the work of, as he put it, in just the first few minutes of evil cowards. And he talked in empathetic terms about the people who've been the victims of violence. And he uh, was a bit of a pastor. He spoke at, at the memorial service. And he talked about the values that hold the country together, that those terrorists were trying to assault the values of equality and democracy and freedom. Let us let our own children know that we will stand against the forces of fear. When there is talk of hatred, let us stand up and talk against it. When there is talk of violence, let us stand up and talk against it. In the face of death, let us honor life. And he made some political points, too, because it became clear with the arrest of Timothy McVeigh, this is the guy who did the bombing in in Oklahoma City, that that he was what we would call a neo-Nazi, a white supremacist, an anti-government activist. And so once those facts became clear, Bill Clinton used this to draw some lines and make clear that we as a country can't give in to that kind of extremism. So there's some real parallels there. And Bill Clinton was a controversial president, but a lot of people felt that by speaking for America at that moment, he really rose to being seen as the president and not just a political leader. So that's really interesting. You raised these three categories, kind of saying establishing clear moral stakes, speaking in empathetic terms about the victims, and then focusing on the values that the country holds together. Did we see any of that in your analysis from, from Donald Trump? Trump's comments on the terrorist attack and the white supremacist activities in Charlottesville failed the test that Clinton met and that all these other presidents have met when they've had the same challenge. First of all, Trump is acting as if there are no clear moral stakes, that both sides are at fault, as he has now come back to saying that there's no difference between neo-Nazis and white supremacists and those who are opposing them in moral terms. And that, that would just be startling to any of the other presidents who faced moments like this. Let's focus a little bit more on other presidents in recent history and how they've responded to major crises as well. So, of course, George W. Bush faced 9-11 during his presidency, very different situation. But there was a, a certain sensitivity to language and choice of terms that Americans could unite behind. How were those terms decided upon? What kinds of things was the Bush administration cautious about doing in terms of labeling or inflaming the public with certain language? So George W. Bush deserves huge credit for how he handled the aftermath of 9-11 in terms of speaking to the country and speaking to the public. He was wobbly the first day, but after that, and especially in his speech to Congress, he set exactly the right tone. We have seen the state of our union in the endurance of rescuers working past exhaustion. We've seen the unfurling of flags, the lighting of candles, 
the giving of blood, the saying of prayers in English, Hebrew, and Arabic. We have seen the decency of a loving and giving people who have made the grief of strangers their own. My fellow citizens, for the last nine days, the entire world has seen for itself the state of our union, and it is strong. He was very careful. Significant presidential speech or comment rings very loudly, and so presidents and their staffs and their advisors carefully weigh each word. And so when George W. Bush went before Congress, he both drew foreign policy lines in the sand. He said, if you are not supporting us against the terrorists, you're complicit with the terrorists. But he also made it clear that in that case, at a time of great fear and potential demonization of Muslims, that this was not a war with Islam and that al-Qaeda was the enemy, not the religion of millions and millions and millions of people around the world. Bush did a very strong job there. It, it seems important to, to be very deliberate about the choice of language we use when it comes to race and religion in America. More recently, in June of 2015, Obama faced a crisis in, in Charleston when Dylan Roof, a white supremacist, killed nine people during a prayer service. Obama has been praised for the powerful eulogy that he gave at the funeral of one of the victims. What made that speech effective for Americans? Um, the speech that he gave at the eulogy for the victims uh, of Dylan Roof in Charleston is one of the more powerful speeches he gave as president. And he both served the pastoral role in saying to people who had uh, suffered, the, the country hears you and feels for you. He talked about the unifying vision of the country and the unifying values that were attacked by somebody like Dylan Roof. Um, and of course, that speech was probably best known because the president breaking into song. He sang Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that powerful. Sometimes the president has to kind of remove himself mentally from the fighting that goes on to say, well, what, what, I know that I'm in the middle of all the fighting, but what do I need to do to bring everybody together? So, Wes, you've been covering the Black Lives Matter movement and race relations in this country for a long time. You were in Ferguson just after Michael Brown was shot. That, of course, was under the Obama administration. Do you think that tensions, racial tensions, have worsened in this country under President Trump? Or has this been sort of escalating over the past, let's say, decade or so? Or 100 years, depending yeah, on how you well, look at exactly, it. Exactly, <laughs> right? I, I mean, I think that, I think that we are having a conversation in public that has always been happening in private, right? 
I think that so very often Pew they run this poll, and I really hate the way this poll is run. Where they talk about, do you think race relations are getting better or worse? And I actually think it's a really bad question because, you know, I, I think about this in a different context, right? If my girlfriend and I, I think we have a great relationship, and she's like, I hate this guy. He's terrible. <laughs> He's the worst. And she's always thought that. From the very beginning, she's always been like, I don't know about this guy. And then six months in, I'm like, huh, maybe things are getting a little tense. Like, I don't know. I might answer that poll question and say, I think my relationship tensions are getting worse. Are they getting worse? No, they've always been bad. I just figured it out, <laughs> right? right? It, it, we see this. We see this very often. It, so these poll numbers go up in terms of Americans thinking race relations are on the wrong track, are getting worse. But that largely has to do with white Americans now being like, apparently, there's a race problem here. What's going on? Black Americans historically have always been like, yeah, things are crazy. This is terrible. What I'd say is I think that we've seen this through the Obama administration, certainly because the existence of a black president president by his very presence created a level of racial dialogue we might not have had previously. And now the response to the black president, the election of Donald Trump and the politics of the right currently have forced these conversations back into the mainstream in a way that perhaps was not existing previously. So you don't think that the president is exacerbating things? I don't know that the president's making them any better. Mm-hmm. Um, but like I said, I kind of have a different stance on this in that I think that what the president does that other politicians do not do is the president speaks the subtext. He doesn't dress it up in a bow. He doesn't pretend like he doesn't believe the things he believes. He's voicing something that has always existed. Mm -hmm. And so does the voicing of it in public, you know, do I think that it is a completely different and stronger message when that's coming from from the podium of the president of the United States? Unquestionably. But it's not like Donald Trump invented these ideas or invented these politics. In fact, he's exploited them to his political advantage and to his gain. Yeah. So to that point, he he had this opportunity to really unite the country this past weekend after a tragedy. Often presidents do this. The consoler in chief is kind of the, the nickname dubbed, dubbed to them during these moments. He clearly didn't do that. Is there anything that the president could do now to, to unite the country? No, I think it's very difficult to. I mean, I mean, look, I think that Donald Trump is exactly who people thought Donald Trump was, whether you like that or, or dislike that. Donald Trump is who Donald Trump is. Donald Trump now coming out and giving some speech where he's like, oh, never mind. I was just kidding. <laughs> Wouldn't really work very well. Right. We know that Donald Trump believes these Confederate monuments should stay up. We know that Donald Trump believes there was violence on both sides, that he thinks leftist protesters were as much to blame as the Nazis and the KKK for the violence. He stated those things, and he said them in his own words over and over and over again. I mean, in fact, I think one of the best things Donald Trump could do theoretically for the country would be to stop talking for a few days. Yeah. And then that brings us to our final question, which is the can he do that question as this show goes. Apparently he can. (laughs) Well, can a president govern through division? Can, can he unite a country despite a reluctance to denounce hate? I guess the, my question in response is, does a president have to unite the country? Donald Trump has always been divisive. Donald Trump has never had a mandate of this nation. Donald Trump has always had the support of 20 to 30 percent of this country who, and they, those people are obsessed with him and they love him and he can do no wrong in their eyes. And he has always not had the support of the vast majority of the country. So there's a real question. I think sometimes in our politics, because of how we think about them, we think that the way our democracy works is an actual majority plus one world where you have to convince 50 plus one people of everything you do and that's going to work. The reality is, I mean, Donald Trump, if the election were held again today, would probably still be the president of the United States. And because of the way our electoral maps work, because of our gerrymandering, because of our, our electoral college system, I think Donald Trump is making a calculus. And Steve Bannon 
is making a calculus. This came out in comments he made in an interview this week that they can keep winning playing these divisive politics because they know that 20 to 30 percent of the nation, they know that part there. Those people are not going anywhere and they will continue to support them. And as long as they have enough support to be reelected and and. And and on top of that, as long as they do not lose the implicit support of the Republican establishment, you know, we're certainly seeing condemnations coming from the Mitch McConnells and Paul Ryans of the world. But short of impeachment, Donald Trump can continue to do whatever it is he wants to do. And he knows that. And I think he's going to keep doing that. Wes, thank you so much for being here. You guys can and should follow Wes Lowry on Twitter at? At Wesley Lowry. Or you can follow me, Allison Michaels, at Allison Mikes. Thank you guys so much for listening to another episode of Can He Do That? You can find Can He Do That wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play. We will be there and we'll bring you a fresh episode next week. Thanks again. Can He Do That is a team effort here at The Post. It's produced by the charismatic and enamoring Carol Alderman with design help from Kat Rudell Brooks and logo art from Loren Boglio. If you like Can He Do That? You should check out some of our other great podcasts. Like Constitutional, a series about how people have framed and reframed the Constitution over time from host Lillian Cunningham. Or try Cape Up with Jonathan Capehart, where Jonathan brings you the voices you need to hear on the topics you try to avoid. You can find these shows anywhere you listen to podcasts and learn more online at WashingtonPost.com slash podcasts. The Washington 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 Post. Post.